welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep dive into the academic research and behavioural science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behaviour. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World. Today, we'll be discussing something with a really fun name that you probably haven't heard of. It's called Habit Discontinuity Hypothesis. And despite its long name, it means actually something quite simple, which is that people are more apt to adopt new behaviors when their daily lives are disrupted, meaning some kind of discontinuity occurs, like moving house or moving job. And as it turns out, when people experience this kind of discontinuity or disruption, it is a prime moment in which to change a habit or a behavior. And this includes all our favorite pro-environmental and climate actions too. Our guest today is Professor Emeritus Buzz Verplanken from the Department of Psychology at the University of Bath. He's very much an elder in the study of attitude and habits in relation to health and human behavior, with an extensive list of publications in environmental psychology. And he's also been the editor of the book, The Psychology of Habits. We dive into his research paper titled Empowering Interventions to Promote Sustainable Lifestyles, Testing the Habit Discontinuity Hypothesis in a Field Experiment. In this study, subjects were given something they called a green goodie bag that contained a whole lot of things that prompted eco-friendly behavior, along with several other eco or energy-saving interventions. And they also tracked how long it had been since each of the participants moved house. And they made sure that they included enough people that they knew had moved house within the last month, three months or 12 months or longer. Professor Buzz Verplanken and I talk about the importance of habits in addressing sustainability through the perspective that habits are unconscious and immediate behaviours that we do without thinking about it too much versus the other kind of behaviours that really take thought and consideration. To understand habits is to also understand that kind of behavioural muscle memory and how it is formed and also how to break it. The reason why I was so interested in having a long and detailed discussion about this discontinuity hypothesis was because I've always had a hunch that the nexus of real estate, where people are getting ready to sell a home and also when people are buying a new home, was an absolute opportune time to get in there and to sell all of the sustainable changes that we need to sell. Decarbonization, electrification, electric car charges, permaculture gardens, more insulation, all of the different energy-saving gadgets, anything that you can do to a home to get it ready to sell that is in the energy environmental upgrade, I mean, that is the time, that is the window to do it. So I thought it was so cool that there was this thing out there that had been studied called discontinuity hypothesis because there is evidence that this really is a perfect time to intervene. And I've never really been able to understand why there weren't more startups and programs and systems and apps and everything that were really trying to target that real estate nexus. It's something that I'm really interested in. And I think we can just do so much more to exploit that moment when there is that exchange or that leading up that six or 12 months leading up to that exchange of a home and then that open window when the new owners move in. Now discontinuity hypothesis is not just about people moving house. It can be any type of disruption. It could be changing work. It could be when you have a baby. It could be even getting a dog. I'm looking at my new dog. Well it's been a year now since so I suppose she's not that new but getting a pet is a type of disruption. Discontinuity events can be something quite negative, like a natural disaster, or they could be some construction or some road work. There's changing schools, going to college, and even small things like trying out a novel product that makes you do something a little bit differently can also create this sense of discontinuity. It's a fascinating topic to go into to really start to dissect or to think about our world as not one world, but these two worlds, one that is our unconscious day-to-day -day habits and the other that is our conscious thinking mind. So let's dive into the conversation about attitude, habits and discontinuity with Professor Emeritus Buzz Verplanken. 
Welcome to the show, Buzz. Yes, thank you, Katie. And, and thanks very much for inviting me. Very exciting, your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have uh, what I believe is the only environmental psychology podcast out there that takes a thorough comb to these environmental psychology papers. And I'm really excited to talk about this idea of habit discontinuity hypothesis, because I used to be a green building engineer, and a lot of my work is around buildings and houses and buildings in some way. And I always had this hunch that when people moved house and real estate agents and this transition was probably like an opportune time. And then I actually saw this paper that actually showed that when people move houses and their lives get disrupted, that there is actually evidence, and there's a name for it, this, this term called um, discontinuity hypothesis, that it actually is a great time to sort of intervene with, um, with these environmental behaviors. So I was really excited to talk, talk about it. But I'll just start off with the first question that I ask every guest is... We have a lot of people who work professionally in environmental sustainability. It is their job to create change with community engagement and in cities, in governments. That's what they're trying to figure out how to do. And yet we tend to have in our field a very low awareness and understanding of environmental psychology, of behavioral science in general, and especially to do with habits, which is your specialty. Why is it a problem or what are we missing out on when our field of sustainability practitioners is just not up with this field? Yes, it's actually a very good question. There are lots of ways you can talk about it, but I think that one of the reasons might be that people in general, but but also um, people who, who actually deal with policymaking, they assume a lot of things about our behavior and they, they take that for granted. For instance, they assume just to, to, to pick something they assume that when you when you pour information over people, that people will absorb it and actually behave accordingly. That is the basis of all, let's say, information campaigns. Now, that is absolutely an assumption that is not warranted. It is we, we are bombarded with information and commercial as well as, let's say, governmental campaigns. But it doesn't work like this assumption assumes. You know, it doesn't work like we, we are, we're not... We're not a sort of bucket of you know, where information comes in and, and behavior pours out. So lots of assumptions, it's maybe good to talk about a number of them. One is, for instance, that people... Are- I call that the value action gap, right? Where people, just because they know about a whole bunch of stuff, and it's also called the information deficit hypothesis. That's right, that we just assume that if we just give people more information they'll change. And this is this fundamental assumption. People don't even know they have the assumption. Like they're not even aware that they have this hypothesis and they're going through the world trying to affect people with this hypothesis that they don't even know that they even have. Would you say that's what happens? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's actually, it, it, is, it is actually the most problematic when you, when you look at policymakers. They, they, they think that people will behave according to their assumptions and people don't do that. So one of the basic assumptions there is that people behave from, let's say, out of motivation and for sort of semi-rational reasons, an assumption that people are driven by their willpower to do things. We will talk about habits, of course, quite a lot, but that assumption is also underlying the, let's say, information campaigns. So so the information campaigners think that when you give people motivating information or where you scare them or you tell them all kinds of reasons why you should do things or leave things, that people will then take that in and change their behavior. That's not happening, as you maybe we all know. First of all, I mean, people are not waiting for that information, so they're not searching for that information. So loads of that information just goes astray. It's something that people are not interested in that. So if that is the basis for your behavior change campaign, then you already miss an awful lot. It is already for a good deal going down the drain. The way I, uh, or what I really like to dive into is this concept of causality, which all as, you know, most people listening will be science or engineering or have a, a law background, like we're educated people. And it might almost be insulting to say that we don't really understand causality or have a really good grasp on it. But diving into this issue, when we have these 
these unconscious sort of hypotheses or, or assumptions about what drives behavior, if we are making them wrong, we're assuming that if we just give people more knowledge, if we just try to motivate people more, and you said if we just try to increase people's willpower, these are not causal mechanisms of what drives change. So we have to be, what I try to encourage people is to be really, really deeply insightful, really ruthless in trying to really ask that question, what is the causal mechanism of what gets the person to change? And I find when you ask this question to people that are in sustainability, it's often not a question that we're really asked. You know, we're thinking about the world in terms of like, here's a building, here's a power plant, here's a solar panel, here's a car. We're really thinking about these sort of physical things. Then we've got to be like, okay, people now do more of this stuff without like really sort of paring down this um this concept of causality that the human mind has actually many different causal mechanisms kind of like levers that we can that we can tap into and we don't want to like tap into the the wrong ones and your focus is on habits like can you talk a bit more about what really is the causal mechanism from your experience of what does drive change and a little bit more of the nuance because people don't necessarily think about like the difference between like attitude and behavior and motivation and willpower i think for the first time they all kind of sound like they're the same thing but they actually have very nuanced differences so can you go into that a bit more and about causality we're going to sort it out katie um, so what, what I said is that, that most people think that our motivation, our attitudes, what we think about what behavior will give us, that that drives behavior. Now, that is sometimes the case. Sometimes we, we do that. Sometimes we sit down and think, what shall we do? What shall we buy? Where shall we go on holiday? Those are moments where we do conscious decision making. Most of the time, I would say, we're not doing that. So... We still behave, but we, we behave because, well, we are behaving because the situation we are in is triggering our behavior and it's triggering the patterns that we are used to, to follow. It's triggering the behaviors that we have done many, many times before, maybe with some, some little twist here and there. But most of the time, we do things that we do most of the time. And the trigger of that, if you talk about causality, is not lying within ourselves. It is lying in the context, in the environment where we operate. So you, when you go to work, you are triggered by, by a time cue. It's eight o'clock and you jump into the car. It's not triggered by a thought that, oh, well, you know what? What shall I do? Shall I take the car or shall I take the train or should I go to work or do something else? No, eight o'clock, you jump in the car, you drive to work. So that's a, a behavior that you've done many, many times. And the, the trigger is outside. And that's for many, many behaviors. The context where behavior takes place is eliciting what we do without conscious thoughts about it. Right. That's a really interesting way to, um, to describe it, that you've got this internal conscious motivation that is driving your behaviors of which some things are and this is your knowledge and your worldview and things that you're really like consciously kind of thinking about but then we have this whole unconscious motivational machine that is just yeah like you say it's in the outside world it's just driven by habits it's like where things are physically paced the way the world is around us and then our response to that environment is that we just start to get into this unconscious habit sort of loop and that you've got these sort of two things going on Interesting, one word you said here is the word just, is just what triggers us. And the, the reason I say that is habits, uh, let's say those behaviors that we do over and over again and repeat all, all the time and are, are sort of automatic, unconscious, if you will, it's not just, it is actually very useful. It is the way we are wired. And it's to, it is the reason why we can simply operate in, in our environment. If you would have to think about Every step you take, everything you do, you would simply get crazy. That's not possible. So our habits are serving us. It makes our experience of reality smooth because we don't think about all these little things that we do all the time. Is that a it's heuristic? A is that what? No, it's not a heuristic, I would say. Heuristics is more, are, are more, let's say, decisions that, let's say, rules of thumb that guide decisions, which you develop maybe over time. But habits are, are very, very much located in memory traces in your brain, if you put it in, in that context. It's things you've done before many times. And it's, it's a link between a cue in the environment, in the context where you operate, and your response to that. 
that link is saved in your in your memory. And once you meet that cue, once you see or hear that cue, then that link is activated and behavior follows relatively automatically. Doesn't mean that we cannot intervene, doesn't mean that, that we can't control it, but this is the, the, the basic mechanism of lots of our behaviors. Is this um, the Daniel Kahneman System 1 and System 2 book or theory? You could apply that on it, on, on this, yeah. yeah. Can you just explain what um, the System 1 and the System 2 thing is in, in a nutshell so people know? And I figure you'll probably explain it better than I can. I always mix up what, what is 1 and what is 2. Um, but let's say system, system 1, I would say one of the two systems, is the, the conscious decision-making, is the conscious thinking. It's the, I say, the part of our brain that deals with information consciously, part of our brain that makes conscious decisions, and the part of our brain that, in terms of evolution, deals with unexpected and new things. That's what, what we've got from evolution, and that's, of course, brilliant, this frontal lobe system. The second system is very basic and much more, comes also from evolution, but it's, let's say, deeper in evolution, developed deeper in evolution, where we are sort of experiencing our environment repetitively. And that's, that creates a system which doesn't need our conscious thinking, doesn't need to stop and, and make a decision, but actually represents that, that situation in our system, in our memory, and makes it possible to respond immediately without any thinking, without any consideration. Those systems are not, I mean, it sometimes seems like, okay, system one and system two, two very different systems. They are different, but they are interacting also. So it's, it's, it's not so, so simple as it may seem. But yes, we, we do a lot of things by force of habit or by, you know, by force of emotions that trigger some behaviors and we're not uh, always consciously aware of that. So when you think about it that way, like you've got, I mean, even though you said that they're not entirely different, but if we just think for the, the sake of the example, like these two kind of different buckets of the way humans think. One is our conscious, more intellectual, rational type of problem-solving thinking, and the other one is these ingrained habits that are a response to the environment around us that we're not really like consciously thinking about everything. And then if you think that you want to put on, I always like to use the, uh, the metaphor of a recipe for behavior design, that you've got all of these different kind of like ingredients and you want to put all of the, the psychological ingredients together in a way that will make like a, like a recipe and that recipe will get somebody to, to change. And I really think it's like that. You're like, we need a little bit of social norms. We'll use a little bit of novelty. We'll, you know, use all these sort of bits and pieces. And so if you've got like, say like a, like if you're using the wrong mechanisms, like the wrong ingredients, it's going to be like putting like salt in coffee or it's going to be like, oh, like I've got a, a recipe that just really needs some sugar and then you're just adding extra flour so it's not really helping. If you're like trying to add more knowledge and more caring and more motivation, you, it's just kind of like putting like the wrong ingredient that is just not needed for this recipe. But if you, if what you're actually trying to change is a habit and then you can get the right sort of intervention and what you just need is like a pinch of salt to go right there, then the recipe will just come together. It'll really work and people will love it. So yeah, I really like the way of seeing it in those two categories like that and to trying to see like what ingredient do you need if you are trying to change a habit, which some environmental stuff is really, really in that category, you know, what is going to do it? Don't put the wrong ingredient in the wrong, uh, in the wrong, in the wrong context, because it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And then what we have is we start blaming people's characters. This is what really bothers me about a lot of what happens in the environmental movement. It'll be like, oh, it's because they're greedy. It's because they're dumb. It's because they're selfish. And it kind of starts leaning into this, like sort of talking very badly of people. And I don't really think people don't do things because they're bad people. I think it's because they haven't it just sort of come to it yet. Maybe I add one thing to your to your recipe. Yes, you you need to know the ingredients, and you need to know there's pinch of salt and all the rest of it. And the important thing is you need to know when to use which ingredient. The timing of things is an important element of that. So when you're cooking, you you do things not just randomly in terms of time. You do one one thing after another, and exactly in the right time, you put in your your salt and your other ingredients. Same with behavior change. Very, very often, in very many periods of time, you're not in the mood for any information, not in the mood for thinking about the environment, you're not in the mood for being either motivated or scared. There are moments when that suddenly happens, and those are maybe moments that we can capitalize on. 
Well, that's a great point in which to segue into your into your research because you're so you're an expert in habit design, and then you noticed that there was this opportune moment when it came to inserting environmental behaviors. Can you take us on a on a journey of how you got from habit design to this idea of discontinuity, and specifically in people moving house and adopting green behaviors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, but what I said about behavior and habits is that most of the time we are not thinking, we are not taking in information. Information campaigns are not touching us in any, any way because we are usually operating by force of habits and intuition uh, and so on and so forth. Now, the information behavior change campaigns, they usually require people at least give some attention, ask them to do things differently, maybe take in some information. So if people are not not in the mood for that, or if there's no opportunity to to do that, then these information behavior change campaigns are not working very well. The idea behind our studies was that, well, if behavior is triggered by environment, uh, by habits, repetitive behaviors, the same place, the same time. One way to, uh, to use that mechanism is to look for situations when these uh, mechanisms are broken. So that may happen on an individual level. You may, for instance, go through a period of change as an individual. Let's say kids that come from school and go, go to college, students who finish their studies go to work, people starting relationships, relationships break up, there are periods when maybe you are looking for a job, there are periods where you move to another place, you relocate. There is large-scale changes like you, you finish, you end your, your working life and you, you retire. So there are all kinds of moments and periods, and some, some periods are shorter, others are longer, where the routines that you have built up simply don't work anymore or you leave them because you, you change. There is a, a gap. Now, in those moments of change, the old habits are not viable anymore, and you have to find new ways of doing things. So let's take the relocation, moving house. Your old patterns, going to work and so on, don't work anymore. You have to find new ways of going to work. Your behaviors in your house um, have to change. You have to find all kinds of new ways of doing things, the shopping, the way you, you, you heat your house, and so on and so forth. So the old habits are obsolete, and... That is creates a window where actually the, the frontal lobe processes, the thinking and the decision-making, have to kick in. And those are the moments where actually behavior change campaigns might simply be very helpful for people. They may also be more effective. So if you, if you have to change your, the way you, you commute or the change the way you deal with energy, if you have to change anyway, why not make it more sustainable? It is the moment to do it. And that was the idea behind our, our studies on habit discontinuity. So we call it habit discontinuities because you, you have a period where your old habits don't work anymore. Now, the, the basic idea of the study that you uh, referred to, this paper, was that given an intervention, we wanted to know whether that intervention would be more effective if it is delivered in that window, this moment of change window, right after people have moved house. Didn't Can you say what the intervention was, what you gave, yeah, yeah, what you did? Sure, sure. So we went to, actually, we, we took on board a group, a charity in the city of Peterborough here in England, whose work it was actually to educate people who had moved house to make more sustainable changes. So, so they did that kind of work. So they already had an intervention that they used. And we, we knew that that intervention was effective to some extent, at least, based on anecdotal evidence that they, had, they were doing so we wanted to know, we wanted to test whether that intervention was more effective after moving house versus when you deliver it to people who didn't change their location. So we set up a basic, very simple design among 800 households. And there were four different categories. Half of them had moved house within the last six months. Half of them had not moved house, and we matched them in terms of all kinds of characteristics, uh, the kind of household they had, the kind of house, and so on and so forth. And within these two groups, half of them got an intervention, half of them were a control group that did not get an intervention. And we simply wanted to know whether the intervention worked better in the group that got the intervention, of course, obviously, but who had moved house. So we we did that. It it was a big study, and the intervention itself consisted of a whole package of 
activities. So it was information. We started with these people, we started to interview them, and we started to ask them about 25 behaviors. And we, we wanted to know, well, which behaviors do you think you could or would or wanted to make more sustainable? So we had a quite precise idea of what people could do and wanted to do. And we capitalized on that. We gave them information based on what they had told us. And we tried to give them information that uh, motivated them to do it. Sometimes also told opportunities when and how they could do it. We also gave some more general information about sustainable lifestyles and so on and so forth. They got a newsletter. So we, we bombarded them with all kinds of stuff. We didn't and the goodie bag, those. the goodie bag. That's what I wanted you to say. Yeah, <laughs> Green yeah. goodie bag is so fun. So, so we, we, we did a lot, but we wanted to know whether the group who had moved house responded better to that compared to the group who did, had not moved house. We measured these behaviors before and we measured them after a period of eight weeks. And in the end, it was a very, took a long time to get this study going, 800 households. It took us actually two years or so. But in the end of the day, we actually did find those who were had moved house had done more of these suggestions and behaved more sustainably than those who had not moved house. We found actually that this window of opportunity lasted about three months. So after three months, after moving, we didn't find effects better or larger than those who had not moved house. So it's it's actually grabbing the first three months. That's the period, in this case, with these behaviors and this type of continuity, where it was more effective to uh, to launch a behavior change campaign. Now, there are all kinds of these continuities. You have individual ones, but you have also shared ones. Let's say the pandemic is a very good example of that, where, where suddenly, out of the blue, for large numbers of people, everything has to stop or change. Those kinds of situations, although dramatic and hopefully we don't get that again, were actually quite uh, interesting in terms of behavior change. You could see there. Mm. Wait, I just thought I've never thought of this before. You've got individual discontinuity events and then you've got collective discontinuity events. Okay. And so when we're dealing with a collective discontinuity event, we might, it might have like a really come in a really different form to the individual ones. That's a a really interesting way of thinking about it. Sorry, go on. No, 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 no. That's, that's, uh, that's, it's good to, to, to summarize that. Of course, many of these collective uh, discontinuities or some of them, they, they come unannounced. We're not prepared to do anything with it, but um, there are, let's say, large infrastructural projects that could actually be used to also plan behavior change interventions. If you build a whole new residential area or if there are big new infrastructural projects in terms of roads or or traffic, it's not a bad idea to take those and in the planning phase also attach to that behavioral change interventions and try to... Wow. So if you're working in a city and you know that there's going to be like a rerouting of traffic or something, a road is going to be closed down or something like that, you can basically piggyback all these little behavioral interventions into that moment. And that's one of the examples in the introduction of your paper, isn't it? There was something like that happened and then they gave residents a bus ticket. And then even after the roads went back, people still kept driving the bus. Can you explain that little example a bit more? Yeah, yeah, that, that has that has happened. There are several studies done along those lines. There's, for instance, one Japanese study where yeah, there was a, a roadblock for, for a while and people had to, to do alternatives and some took the bus uh, instead of driving a long way around. A number of them kept also doing that. That's also one of those things you, you may find, actually, behaviors that you never knew were actually working well for you. That's one of the things of habits. Habits lead to tunnel vision. We're not looking for alternatives. We're not looking for better options because we do the things we always do the same way, the same the same time, the same place. But once, for instance, a discontinuity opens, it opens up maybe your eyes to alternatives that actually are not so bad and maybe are not as bad as you always thought they are. It reminds me of that that quote, what is it, a crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste. It sort of brings extra meaning to that quote because I was thinking about like natural disasters are these collective discontinuity events. Say there's an extreme heat wave and so you can't go to work. There's a flood. You mentioned traffic. What other kind of collective things? That we've had the, the COVID, although that might something like that might not happen again for, for a while. These could be, they're kind of a crisis, but then 
we can really look at them as a very opportune moment in which to improve all of our all of our habits. Yeah, if you look at, I don't know how it's in America, but here I see that pandemic, horrible as it was, it has done something in terms of people's work-life balance. People working from home discovered that actually there was a lot to gain from it, generalizing a bit, but it didn't make people less productive, but it made people a lot happier to, to be more flexible in terms of. So that has not turned back to the old uh, situation before the pandemic. There are many people who have actually agreed with their employer, for instance, to work from home one or two days, which I think is a big benefit from this horrible pand- pandemic. There are people who discovered working in nature as something they never thought or did before. Yes, I think those are also examples where these discontinuities lead to discovering alternative behaviors, alternatives that you never thought. I also felt from that the pandemic created a an even deeper shift than just this habit change. But my sense is that it was the end of the hustle culture of this this whole world that we were in. Maybe not everybody was in, but there was a sense of, you know, success and working 100 hours a week. And I mean, whether you work in something ethical or sustainability or something that's just totally more more material, I mean, we can still all be in that same headspace if it's all, you know, sort of like the, the rat in the wheel, working, working, working. And I felt like that kind of disappeared as a deeper value system for people to be like, you know what, I just don't need to achieve all of this external stuff at the cost of my my physical and mental health and and sleep and it seems like it's I feel like it's kind of evaporated as a as a value system of our more like western modern society is just my, my sense of the looking back on the last few years of course if you if you don't harvest these benefits they disappear let's say in terms of working from home if you, if you don't talk to the employer and say well this is what what i experienced i'm not less productive am i but i'm a lot happier can we make an arrangement for that so lots of these changes temporary changes must be harvested must be solidified so to speak to in order to to make them permanent and that's of course also in terms of behavior change interventions brings me to to another side of the habit coin so we talk about habit as as blockages and barriers for change but the features of habit are exactly the features you want new behavior sustainable behavior to acquire so you want sustainable behaviors to become habits so the formation of habits is another side of this story Coming back to behavior change interventions, they usually stop actually where it gets important and interesting. Okay, suppose hopefully your intervention is effective. How can you retain that behavior? How can you make people retaining their their newly acquired, really sustainable behaviors? Okay, so people might adopt the behavior, but then they might only do it for a little while and then it can go away. So how do we make the long-term behavior stick? That's what you're talking about. Then we have to go back to the to the drawing table of habits and where in, in this environment is a habit operating? What are the parameters? How can we sustain that behavior in terms of the context where it takes place? So very simple. I recently bought an electric car and I'm thinking a lot about electric cars here. Okay, I charge it at home, so I'm fine. But lots of people cannot do that because they have to rely on charging points wherever they are. And they're not enough. So if you want electric to promote electric cars, you need to create the infrastructure to make that possible. If you don't do that, it doesn't happen. Lots of behaviors and behavior change interventions don't think about that enough they just think well okay if we motivate people if they change great you see them change but then come a year later and it's gone so the new behavior should be rewarding easy sustainable and if you don't take care of that then it goes down the drain and there goes your behavior change intervention budget Mm. You know, the most common question that people ask me, because I'm out talking about behavior, environmental behavior design and gamification, it's, it's, what I, it's what I do. And I would say seven or eight out of 10 of every question everybody asks me is why do we need to look at individual psychology or habits, actions or behaviors when what we really need to change is the system? And so I've put a lot of thought into paring down this question, kind of developing like a taxonomy of how to 
go through this question because it's a really big complex question but I just thought what you just said really kind of encapsulates the connection because there's a problem in the question the question is starts with a false dichotomy that there is this separation between individual behavior and the system that people are in that there's these kind of like two things that don't really connect with each other and there's also like a, a problem or a sort of a an incorrect thinking in the question that there is anybody saying that if people just changed all their habits and all their behaviors that everything would be fixed like no environmental psychologist or sustainability person is is saying that but there are a realm there's like a branch of things that solidly sit in behaviors and in individual action that don't sort of sit in system design but then those things interface with the with the system so can you just explain a little bit more about your thoughts about how one is that this sort of bias that can we really actually change the entire world through habits alone Probably not. Nobody's really saying that. But then these habits sort of sit in the context of the system design. Like you said, there's no point in training people to get electric cars if there's not enough charges installed. But then people can also lean too much to the other side where they think, oh, well, let's just change all the infrastructure and ignore the psychology. And then we're wondering why people aren't using this infrastructure or applying for these rebates or installing these things. I mean, I'd love to hear you explain how the two come together kind of in the same organization. Yeah, the, 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 and I think you're you're hitting a very important point because it's it's they are linked and they are very very strongly linked. Yes, I mean if you take our example, then it's very clear. But it's also what you say: infrastructures or there are systems built, and people suddenly appear not to use them. Well, that also has to go back to the drawing table. And say, well, a habit and a behavior should be in essence rewarding. It should help you. It should be beneficial for you. It doesn't mean beneficial from the policymakers' view, but beneficial from the individual view. There, there are lots of situations here with transportation where, yes, there are trains, but then, let's say, old people have to walk miles and miles on stations and climb steps that they have difficulty to do. Sorry, it doesn't work. You can have great stations and, and trains, but if you make it, if it's difficult for people to use it, then you're going to find that it's going to be underused. So the systems have to, to be geared towards the individual, and then the individual can hook on systems that they like. You develop habits because they serve you. If you don't like it, you can't afford it. If, you, if it's too much effort, you won't develop any, any habits. How do you feel if somebody says to you, like, Buzz, why would you even think about studying habits when what we really need to change is the infrastructure? Like, aren't you just sort of wasting your life just trying to get people to do these tiny drop in the ocean stuff? How do you feel if somebody was to ask you the question well, like that? Because those who are designing these infrastructures may not have any ideas how habits develop. If you don't know that, you, you may build the wrong infrastructure. There are lots of examples of that. Let's say that's an old example in the Netherlands. They had very, very grand ideas about architecture and how architecture should make people happy. They built a huge, huge area, new residential areas, big flats. But they built it in such a way that they expected people to use, let's say, lots of green areas in between those flats. There were lots of, there were different layers, one layer for cars, one layer for pedestrians. Great infrastructural ideas with a big vision behind it. How can you make people living happily? Come there 20, 30, 40 years later, it's a ghetto. It's absolutely a horrible area to live. It's dangerous. All these predictions did not pan out. And why they didn't pan out? Because they were, yes, they were in the head of the designers, but they did not have any idea of how people actually behave. If you don't do that, if you don't hook these two systems together, the individuals who behave in a certain way and the mechanisms that drive that, in this case, the architects who design. I have another example in my working life here in Bath. I was six years head of department and we got a new building. And it was great to work with an architect to see, well, what, what can we do with the money and the budget and the, the space we have? We made a very nice, great building with great labs and all the rest of it and offices. Now I see that there was one thing that we didn't do right. So we had four levels and three of those levels were offices. And what happened was that over the, the years after that, these three levels created very different subcultures. 
So the people living in those offices did not interact with between the levels. That was actually, I think, a mistake. We should have had thought about that, certainly as psychologists and social psychologists. That's also an example where you know, the system and the infrastructure is interacting with individuals and individual behaviors. If you don't give them an opportunity to interact, for instance, between these different levels in our, our building, then you create three different, three different social environments. That was such a great explanation you just gave. And I'm so glad I asked it of you because uh, every time I ask, I ask this question of a lot of different psychologists and everybody answers it in, in a bit of a different way. And I think just explaining it in that way that says, if you are a system designer, if you are looking at how to change major infrastructure and major systems across utilities and cities, across thousands of people, if you don't understand the psychology of how those people are going to interact with the system that you're designing, it could not work. You could waste millions of or even billions of dollars building stuff that just doesn't work with the human organism well. I was a guest on a podcast recently and I got asked the question because everybody asks me of it. And I said to the guy who was hosting it, I said, tell me, is a traffic light, is a traffic light a systems intervention or is it an individual behavior when someone stops at a traffic light? And he was like, uh, uh, is, uh, well, um, you know, uh, and I said, well, you've got the system, you've got, you know, you'll get a, a ticket from a policeman if you don't stop. It's a system in that it's set up on, you know, everywhere on all the roads, but you're relying on individual people to follow that. Like I am individually stopping at that red light. So what is it, system or individual? And he's like, um, both. And I'm like, that's right. You know, because I, I really like the traffic light example because it really explains that it's, it's the most common example I can think of about how these things are really the one thing and this separating them in this question is really not the right way to think about it. What do you think about the traffic light example to answer this question? I think it's, I think it's a very good example. You have also traffic light systems that, that are connected in a, in a certain area, a certain road. When you approach it and it is green, then the following crossing will be green as well. So you have a very smooth ride through a certain area. Well, that's a system where people will be very happy to, to drive through. You can't have infrastructure, big system st structures without thinking about individual behaviors. And the other way around. Also not very useful to only focus on individual, individual behaviors and ignore the, the bigger context or the systems in which they operate. Mm, mm. I'm going to copy exactly what you said. And <laughs> I've actually got a couple of other episodes coming out where I sort of riff on this one concept and I'm kind of collecting all my different thoughts or my sort of multitude of answers that I've, that I've recorded. I wanted to just jump back into your study. I feel like it's almost like a zeitgeist that comes out now that um, people have started asking it. Like I never remember 10 years ago this particular question really being asked or talked about a lot. But as sustainability and environment as a profession and as a movement has become so much more professional and, and complex uh, and, and really more sort of established, it was quite fringe. 20 years ago, it was really fringe. Now it's like sort of like a main profession. It's the kind of on the tip of the tongue of the zeitgeist now of being like, why are you asking me to do things like composting and turn the lights off when we should be looking at this big systems architecture? So in a way, like nobody is really well practiced at answering this one this one question like it's not a something that you know oh here's like 20 people that all have their PhDs and 10 books that have been written on it we're all sort of trying to figure out exactly how to um how to piece it together in psychology for basically all psychologists even the neuropsychologists who are only focusing on brain stuff well brain stuff represents the environment brains brains represent systems around us and so you you cannot separate individual and the context and the systems in which they operate. And there are social systems, there are physical systems, there are moral systems. They all have impact and they all interact uh, with us as individuals. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There are all these multiple kind of instant, I don't even know what you'd call them, like sort of incarnations of systems that are all together, your financial system, your physical infrastructure system, your social system, your value system, and they're all kind of there together. And if we're just thinking about it in a one dimensional way, like maybe the government system or the financial system, that's only just really like one lens or one sort of shell. I'm kind of thinking of it like valencies of an atom, you know, valencies and like electrons moving around and they're in shells. You've kind of got all these shells 
cells all going around. And you want to, if you want to sort of change like the system, you're going to be changing all these different sort of shells or kind of like valencies. Fun metaphor to um to think of. Um, but I wanted to jump into that your study a bit a bit more. So you gave these group of people, your participants, half of which had not moved house, half of which had moved house recently, a green goodie bag with a bunch of interventions they could use and some information and then they got an email newsletter and some uh, a green guide some information for local businesses now i'm assuming that the just giving them the intervention even if they don't move house must have had a bit of an effect they must have done something even if they did not move my question is how much was the effect if people just got the goodie bag and didn't move house and then how much did you boost it from the move what you're asking for is what what we call effect size how how big an effect is it it's important to to note that it's important to note that the effect size was quite small so statistically we could clearly see that there was an effect but the effect size was not very very large now this study was financed by government it was a three year study after three years we told them about the results and they were jumping up and down they said oh this is great news and maybe we should roll this out over the country we did everything that we could to, to try to convince them that no, you should not roll this out over the country because the effect size is small. That would be a waste of money. What you should do is to try to organize or find situations where you can expect a larger effect size. If you, for instance, what we talked about, if there is a planning, a plan to build a new residential area where a large group of people will move into in a relatively short period of time, then that is a situation where if you focus on that, you can actually expect a larger effect size of your intervention. It's more efficient. You can actually use also the social structure to boost your intervention. You can use social processes. For instance, you can you can engage a group of people within that area, the, the residential area, maybe to promote it amongst their, their residents. So there are ways to, to create a better situation in order to expect more value for money. So what I'm getting from what you said is that what your study shows is not necessarily that we now need to deliver a green goodie bag to every single household that has necessarily moved. The intention of the study is not to say like, here's like the perfect green solution that we tested and there's evidence that it worked. But what it really did, these kind of studies are sort of like really like testing a hypothesis in the real world. But you do have evidence that any kind of green intervention is more sticky with the people that have moved. So in the context of an existing sustainability plan of whatever you're trying to do, electric cars, getting people onto heat pumps, um, composting, trying to increase recycling rates, all of this stuff. If you've got this kind of like existing plan going in a city and then you know that there are these new developments, there are people moving, perhaps you've got this one sort of like mechanism going on in a city of moving that you can increase the efficiency of your existing sustainability plan by focusing on those moving people. Did I capture that right? Yes, what you can say, it was proof of concept. That is the term that, that we offer. We demonstrate that an effect can be obtained, that it's there. Then the next question is, how do you scale it up? How do you make it more efficient? Just like any production process is doing. When you design a new product or a new substance, whatever, you, you do it in the lab, you test it out, you see if it works, then you scale it up and you, you find ways to, to make it efficient. Did you see another study that was published in the Journal of Psychology about soap nuts and discontinuity hypothesis? No, tell me about it. This is really fun, um, really fun topic, and it kind of easy, easy to test. So I, I loved it because when you think of moving house in terms of discontinuity, it's this kind of like really big, expensive thing. And then, but discontinuity can be very tiny, like day-to-day things as well. So what they did is that they, the study got a group of people. I should interview the woman who did it on um, on the podcast also. Or maybe I even have her. I might even have her scheduled. What they did was they got a group of people that they wanted to see if they would change their laundry patterns. I think it was just to use less fabric softener 
conditioner. It was a very small behavior they wanted to change or use a lower setting on the dryer, something to do with laundry. And then one group of people, they asked to just do it. They just asked them, like, it's good for the environment if you change your laundry practice like this. And then the other group, they said the same thing. It's good to change for the environment if you change your laundry like this. And why don't you try these soap nuts? Do you know what soap nuts are? They're these little like hard sort of little nuts and they're meant to release a soapy thing. I got them once. I wasn't really impressed by them. They sort of, I was like, I'll just use regular eco-friendly detergent. But anyway, the group that got the soap nuts, just because it was this novel thing, and it wasn't even about getting them to encourage the soap nuts. The soap nuts were a way to break the habit of laundry with this sort of novelty factor. And then the ones who got the soap nuts actually adopted the eco-friendly, the intended eco-friendly behavior much more than just the the regular group. And I thought that was just a really fun example of how you can apply it in a very small sort of day-to-day context. Very nice. But anyway, it might be fun to, to have a look at. I mean, about this continuity, this habit, this continuity situation, people might also simply be in the mood for change when you change house or when you start a new relationship. Sometimes you're simply in the mood for change more than, than what you're already changing. Capitalizing on that is something that might be very productive. Could you just summarize, like if we were to have a workshop and we were to put on discontinuity hunting glasses, we were like, let's think through all of life, like in all of the houses and the businesses around us, where would we be looking for these discontinuity events that could be anywhere from really big things like a housing development right through to these tiny things like doing laundry? Like what can we be hunting for? That would be a very good exercise. You, you would you would probably come up with a lot of situations that you have not thought about within businesses and companies. There's so much change around us. Everything is changing. That's the fabric of, of life. You would definitely find many situations, and some are not so nice. Even these situations might be interesting because everything... I mean, I'm thinking also schools, changing yeah. schools, maybe moving from one year to another year. My daughter's just finished second grade and she's about to go into third grade. That's going to be another change with the classroom. Kids going into college, finishing college, starting new jobs, businesses, relocating their offices. What else? People starting diets, changing gyms. What else is there? If you put together a group of people in, 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 in a room for, for an hour and brainstorming, and you, you get a whole list of stuff. And yes. This is my hope for the podcast, that every single interview, every single study kind of invokes sort of like a design thinking question. And that's the design thinking question. Like, let's go on a discontinuity hunt and just think through like all of these kind of events that create change and then think of like how we can piggyback behaviors. And that's how we come up with great ideas. So we're not just falling down the value action gap, making more documentaries and more festivals and more conferences. We're actually coming up with really good ideas that will work. The challenge, of course, is very often the practicality of it. How do you do that? How can you capitalize on a change? How can you get in? How can you sustain? How can you do it? Changes are there, but if let's say if a company is reorganizing, it needs to be planned. It needs to it needs to happen. If you don't have plans for that, then it doesn't go by itself. That is not always feasible. So that, that there are lots of practicalities to deal with. Yeah, that's where I find I feel a little bit stymied or kind of stuck sometimes with this stuff because I really feel like I've come across this incredible like gold mine, you know, like I found the treasure at the bottom of the sea. When I look into behavioral psychology, environmental psychology, I'm particularly a fan of feedback loops, like being able to show real-time data. This is the type of um, software I've designed. I just love the idea of like having counters on it, on everything and then applying like sort of game design to this. Like it's incredible that it really works. Like every time I do it, it works like magic if I design it nicely i teach other people how to do it it works like magic for them and it all it all works yes you can completely gamify and develop incredible systems that and have great stories that captivate people and get people to do the stuff and sometimes people say to me like katie why don't you make like a game or like an app or like a program or a campaign that does this and i'm just like yeah if i have a 20 million dollar budget and an amazing team of people from pixar and great film writers and great software developers and some really cool data scientists and some hardware hackers yeah like we can change everything but then you you have all these incredible tools and you know they work but then it's like okay now i gotta have the budget and actually be able to deliver it as a program in real life and i think that's really where the rubber hits the road with this stuff it's like uh okay now we need the money and the delivery Let me say one thing. That's why we need people like you. 
for in even if you, you you bump into all kinds of barriers, you keep going. That's why I like this young people movement. So let's say 100 years from now, people think back this period. And hopefully that these young people now are making significant changes. If people look back and say, yes, at that time, we needed all those people who are blocking the road sometimes, who are making podcasts, who didn't give up. And thanks to them, things have turned for the better. We really need to, to keep going. We need to keep going. Thank you for the for the compliment, although I don't really feel very deserving of it because I have not managed to fundraise either philanthropically or through venture finance $20 million to build the dream gamified behavior app interventions to sort of transform cities. It is kind of my dream, but, um, you know, it, it's hard to sort of pull it all together in a practical. Making a podcast is easy, but making a really substantial campaign or a bit of software or intervention is a much is a much bigger job. But maybe before my life is up, I'd be able to do it. Um, but that's a kind of an interesting topic to jump into um what you said with like the young people i kind of am hoping that all of the material that i put together or the interviews i do with the podcast or trying to explain these kind of behavioral interventions that can really work and the style of design thinking that when people you know like when i was 19 or 20 and i was studying environmental engineering and i was super excited about like sustainability stuff i could do in the real world i didn't have any of this knowledge available to me you know i'd been working as a green building engineer and been like a CEO of a green media company, spoken at lots of conferences, was like really in it. And it wasn't until my early 30s that I had even heard of behavioral science, like as a thing, like I just never heard the phrase and I'd never heard of environmental psychology and even these sort of habit books and habit apps. Like this is, I feel like really only sort of come into its own kind of in the last 10 years. And it hasn't really filtered into the environmental science, green building design, climate manager sort of world very much. So I kind of hope that by me putting the material together like if it can get out to people when they're students when they're you know 19 21 years old and they're starting to get really engaged with this stuff you know they'll be able to just dive like straight in have all the tools understand the mechanisms and then you know spend the first 20 years of their career like in a much more further ahead place than when I started back around the year 2000 it took me it's taken me like 15 20 years you know to to figure it all out not figure it all out but figure out you know what I have figured out so far I just noticed you had another study when I was looking at the studies that you sent me one about climate worry and is it effective I don't usually interview people about these type of topics because I'm far more interested in like action design than like are people like climate anxiety and stuff not saying it's bad it's just sort of not where my where my interest is but I thought it was kind of a cool topic in terms of you know inspiring people trying to focus on the action in young people who are climate conscious there's a lot of really deep anxiety and 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 worry you know like the the rubber's hitting the road now with climate change like when I read my first climate change book when I was 16 it was a way off thing in the future it was our children's 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 future generation now it's now it's like our life now so there's all this climate worry like what were your findings and thoughts on climate worry climate anxiety is it useful do we even need it is it just navel gazing emotional turmoil that's totally unnecessary I think it's very important to distinguish between climate change anxiety and general pathological forms of anxiety. The study we did was we tried to to separate it, we tried to sort that out. What we found was that climate change, if you look at people's level of anxiety, if you predict that from a number of sources, personal worries and climate change worries, then it's personal worries that drives pathological anxiety. If you take that into account, then climate change worries don't add anything to that. So if I'm already just an anxious person about life in general, like let's say I have a generalized anxiety disorder, I'm highly anxious about all the things that we can be anxious about in life. If I just kind of wrap climate under that umbrella, it's not very useful. It's just the kind of pathological, unuseful state of stress. Is that right? It could very well be that person is also also worried about climate, but climate change worries is not leading to pathological anxiety. It's not part of that. And on the contrary, okay. climate okay. change worries, worries are really related to positive action, to, to intentions to do something, 
you can say that pathological forms of anxiety might include climate change anxiety, but climate change anxiety as such is absolutely not necessarily related to pathological anxiety. Mm-hmm. So climate change anxiety is, for a lot of people nowadays, quite a rational response. As what you say, 20 years ago, 20, maybe maybe even 10 years ago, we, we didn't see climate change. Now we see it. Now we experience it. We see it on television. So what we call psychological distance has diminished dramatically. So psychological distance can be like in time in the future no it's, it's now it can be space or it's some, somewhere else in the world no here you it can be social it can be that other people who are affected not me the psychological distance is dramatically reduced people really think it, ah. even experience and that's and that is that constral constral theory yeah, you could. Yeah, that's. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I just had a question about definitions of constructal theories. Yeah, if you think about various to behavioral change to sustainability, this was one of them. The the distance that it feels far away, and that's what constructal theory is, right? If it feels very far away, very distant, distant. What does constructal even mean? Like as a word, it's not a word that we use day to day. Like, con- is is it about context? Is that what it, where it comes from? No, I would say it's it's about construing your in this in this case how you think about environmental problems. Okay, you either think about them as far away or kind of immediate, and the more immediate you feel them, the more you are triggered to act and want to do something. I think that there will be lots of studies coming out showing that the psychological distance has changed over time. Many more people are realizing it is here and now. It is not far away. It is me who might be actually be affected by it. And so your study showed that the the anxiety is helpful, like it is the anxiety is good to drive intention and action, and it's quite separate to the to a pathological type of anxiety, which is sort of like like a disorder, and it doesn't necessarily cause it. Like if you get anxious about climate change, you're not going to suddenly have a anxiety nervous breakdown. One's not going to necessarily lead to the other. No, it can be that people who are let's say vulnerable to an anxiety problem in general, that might also be increased by information and news about climate change. That, that is very, very possible. Climate change anxiety is something that is independent in principle from, from pathological anxiety. It kind of makes sense that, that they are quite separate and that being anxious about climate change is a perfectly rational and reasonable um, response and that a certain amount of it is good and healthy for taking taking action. Although I'm also a big advocate of just having like, um, uh, I, I don't know what it is yet, but like a golden ratio, it's just a term. I was just editing another podcast and I just brought up this idea of the golden, golden ratio of like how much negative climate information you need to how much positive future visionary kind of like here's our goal like let's make it make it happen maybe it's like you need 20 percent of like negative anxiety inducing climate doom and then 80 percent like solar panels and green roofs and electric cars like let's sort of go here but i mean that's kind of like a really another totally other topic it is definitely so that making people anxious and afraid without giving them any tool to deal with it that that is the worst thing you can or situation you can be in climate change has a bit of that for many people yeah, yeah, just giving people negative information without a tool or an action to do something about it just creates anxiety with kind of nowhere to go. And so what do you think is the, if you were to sort of finish up with one kind of like gold standard or one kind of like design theory to impart to the sustainability managers who listen to the podcast, if there was a gold standard of how to apply this type of environmental psychology to your sustainability work, like what, what would it be? I think it would be if there are any large-scale planning of cities, roads, all kinds of planning processes hook on also the issue of sustainable behaviours. That is actually something that needs to be done at scale that can only be done if it's part of the planning process. If you do that systematically, we also could hook on areas that invite people or that make it easier to behave sustainably. I would say city planners, take this, take this on board. Yeah, planning out these discontinuity events. Absolutely. Planning out these discontinuity events as these kind of opportunities in the whole kind of 10-year sustainability plan, like rolling, rolling them out. And where would you like to see the field of environmental psychology and its connection with sustainability be 100 years in the future? I would like to see it connecting with other disciplines, architecture, for instance. 
actually we have here some projects where psychologists, social psychologists and architects were actually working together on, on, on projects. Yeah, it seems no matter what field you're in, everybody's like in a bit of a silo. Whether you're an engineer, you're kind of in your engineer silo, architects get in their silo. I don't think there's any particular field that's more in a silo than others. It's like everybody just sort of gets in a silo of thinking. And I just noticed this particularly because I'm like a, I'm like an anti-silo person. I'm like the sort of person who jumps between all the silos. Like I just can't bear being in one. So I'm always jumping in different worlds, always have sort of love to move around like that. And then you start to see these sort of silos and you're like, oh, you guys have to be talking to each other. Why are the game designers not talking to the utility? carbon people like you guys have never even met each other and the artists need to be over here with like the data scientists and for all mixing a lot more we can have way more innovation it, it happens in other areas take for instance economics how is economics related to psychology well that's the area of behavioral economics very productive area i think we need much more of those kinds of interactions between disciplines yeah, absolutely. I'm, I could not be a bigger advocate for the mixing of different disciplines and every all the amazing learning and creative experiences I've had with my sustainability work has not come from the sustainability community. It's come from going to other worlds and seeing what I can find outside and then bringing it back and being like, hey, everybody, like I found this like amazing thing. Like, let's all, you know, like try this thing out. And yeah, like we've, I think we've all got to push ourselves to get out of our own silos more, you know, to make more of that magic happen. All right, well, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Bas, and explaining your wealth of experience in habit design and in discontinuity. I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast really appreciate these conversations because we don't get this knowledge in anywhere else. And for the right type of deep sustainability nerd, it really is sort of like water on a, on a sponge. Like we really absorb it and grasp on this wisdom that we can apply to our, to our profession. So thank you. Thank you for myself. Thank you also on behalf of all the listeners who I know will really appreciate this as a way that they can weave into their own into their own work. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to see some more real, tangible implementation of this theory in the field. Thank you, Katie. It was a big pleasure to, to be on your podcast and I wish you all the best with it.